What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. to burn it all down. It may not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it's the feminist sports podcast you need. We have everyone back together this week, sports writers Lindsay Gibbs, Shireen Ahmed, and Jessica Luther, and historians Brenda Elsley and me, Amira Rose Davis. This week, we will build off last week's brief burn of the NFL's tone-deaf decision to have the Washington football team play on Thanksgiving, with a deeper discussion of the use, or rather misuse, of native mascots and imagery. Then we will turn to FIFA and all of its awfulness. And Shireen will also interview writer, reporter, and senior editor of MLSsoccer.com, Adiel Castillo, about the MLS playoffs. And of course, we will set our burn pile aflame with all the things we were fuming about this week and name and celebrate our badass woman of the week. So let's get going. Okay, so... As I mentioned last week, the NFL decided it was a good idea for some reason for the Washington football team to host a Thanksgiving game. And I wanted to take this moment to talk a little bit further about this use and continued use of Native mascots. Brenda, can you start us off here? Yeah, you know, it's interesting how Native American mascotry has developed. It didn't start with sports. It started with social clubs in the 19th century and white men's attempt to capture what they perceived as some wild, savage element within Native American culture that they needed to appropriate for their world domination, essentially. (laughs) And really, the first teams we see, and I'm sad to say this as a university professor, is in colleges and university sports in the 19th century. And I just think to frame the discussion, it's important to remember that it's not a coincidence that that's the moment when it occurs, that it's a moment when the government and the military and settler culture has stopped seeing Native Americans as a threat. Mm -hmm. And so they're able in their minds, right, to neutralize them in this particular way. So it really is about violent colonization and it's at its root. The first professional teams that used it, this is not going to shock you guys at all, is in Boston. (laughs) (laughs) You know my feelings. It was the Boston Red Stockings, which changed their name in 1912 to the Boston Braves. Also, the Cleveland Indians, interestingly enough, represented a different tradition. That name was chosen right around a little bit later in honor of an actual Native player. Louis Sock Alexis of the Penobscot as the tribe. And so it's it's an interesting history. It's it, Of course, it's straightforwardly racist, but the history itself is more complicated than that, I think, than it usually gets nuance or lack thereof in the news. And I'm just going to say my favorite quote is the simplest 
that comes out of these discussions by Ray Halberder. He is a leader in the Oneida Indian Nation. And he was just asked, and he said really simply, it doesn't even take a lot of words. It's a dictionary-defined offensive term. And he was saying this about the Washington football team and others. Washington team's name is a painful epitaph that was used against my people, Indian people, when we were held at gunpoint and thrown off our lands. Yeah, thank you for that history lesson. And I think that it reminds me of the historian Deloria, Phil Deloria, who talks about the work that imagery can do to render a subject invisible and to he has a book called Indians in Unexpected Places to talk about the fact that everybody also assumes Native peoples only exist in the past. And when I look at these mascots and I think about that in these discussions, a lot of them operate doing that same work, essentially making Native peoples only existing in the past and not understanding both modern day existence, but modern day community and ailments and concerns. Lindsay, do you want to build on this? Yeah, I think what's the most frustrating is that how are we still here? Like, you know, society is making progress bit by bit towards being more inclusive, although it's much slower. And it's certainly not a straight line. But it feels like we've been almost to a tipping point with these mascots, you know, that the conversation has been growing. But there's no actual progress being made. Like, there's no tipping point. I think in society, like, you know, we hit these tipping points every once in a while. A lot of people are saying, like, we did recently with Harvey Weinstein, of course, and, you know, coming forward with sexual assault allegations. And all of a sudden, there's been this flood of, oh, we're, we somehow get it. You know, we're somehow taking this a little bit more seriously now. And it, it felt overnight, although it wasn't to, of course, the many women and men who've been fighting this battle for years and years and years. But there was a tipping point. We don't know where that's going to lead, but it was a tipping point. You know, we've seen we saw it with gay rights in the United States, where, you know, within a couple of years, Obama could go from, you know, not not even running for president on the platform of, you know, gay marriage to it was legal, you know, it happened very, very slowly, and then all at once. And I, I keep wondering, like, how when is this tipping point going to come for these mascots? Is it? I feel like it has to. It's going to be really disappointing if it doesn't. A few years ago, it seemed like we there might be a legal force for there to be a tipping point when the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office ruled that the Washington NFL's team name was disparaging to Native Americans, and therefore it canceled six of its federal trademark registrations. Of course, the team started to appeal the verdict, but it seemed like a real big moment. Like, oh, this might be it if they can't trademark this name anymore. However, this year in June, there was a Supreme Court ruling that really went in the favor of the Dan Snyders and the Washington NFL team. But it came about in this really backdoor, unfortunate way. What happened was this Asian American band who called themselves the Slants as a really a way they wanted to kind of reclaim that term and, you know, poke fun. And they were they're a really big band on promoting Asian American culture. But the trademark office said that they couldn't 
patent that name. They couldn't trademark that name because it was offensive to Asian Americans. And they're telling this to an Asian American band. So this Asian American band, the Slants, sued and sued and sued, got all the way to the Supreme Court, in which case the Supreme Court actually ruled in their favor, saying that they were allowed to keep their name. Unfortunately, what happened was the Washington NFL team's case, since it was under appeals, it paired with this case in this lens. Because they're dealing with the same law, it seems that legally the ruling for the slants will apply to the Washington NFL team. And therefore they will be able to get these trademarks going forward. And it's really unfortunate because the the Slants band is not a fan of the Washington NFL team at all. Mm-hmm. And so they're really frustrated because they're saying, you know, we, we are fighting for minority rights, for, you know, letting the marginalized decide, you know, how they present themselves and really trying to speak for those who don't have a voice. And it just really, really is horrible that the Washington NFL team name got validated by all this. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Jess? So I wanted to talk more about representation and like that this is so much bigger than just native mascots. So NPR's Code Switch, they recently interviewed Dr. Adrian Keene, who's a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, and she writes this amazing blog about appropriation of indigenous culture. And she talked about the fact that, you know, there are these arguments that having native mascots honors native people, and that one of the big arguments for it is that it's kind of the what about it <laughs> argument that like, why are you worrying about this when native people have such bigger issues. And there are issues like poverty, environmental racism, the epidemic of sexual violence against Native women. And Keene's response to this is so great in the piece. She says, quote, we're asking our lawmakers in D.C. to engage with Native peoples on a nation-to-nation basis to understand our sovereignty, to understand our treaty rights. But the only image they see every day of Native peoples is this disembodied head accompanied by a racial slur. I mean, we're talking about the NFL team in the nation's capital and this idea of like what we think of when we think of Native people. I mean, that image is a big deal and it is so much bigger than just what's happening at this sporting event. And I think Dr. Keene really draws that together really well in this piece. Yeah, totally. Shireen, you want to add? Yeah, thanks, Jess. That's really, really powerful. I also wanted to just sort of add that recently we've seen, I think, an understanding of connection of struggles, like just for Thanksgiving Day in the U.S. or Indigenous Peoples Day, CAP was on Alcatraz Island sort of celebrating and honoring Native Americans and and, and their voices. And I think that's really important because we see different folks from different racialized and marginalized communities banding together to sort of amplify understanding that their liberations are connected. And I think this is really important. Also, and and, and this idea of mascot and just sort of, I think the, the biggest problem I have is that when Indigenous folks are telling you this is offensive and the rebuttal is, no, that's not what we mean. It's not about what you mean. It's about how they feel and the history. And it's just really, really easy to dismiss. And I've seen in Ontario where I live and I've seen in Canada, junior schools, elementary schools have changed their names of their sports teams and have changed the names. And I'm really happy to see that because it doesn't take much. And one of the arguments against changing names in junior schools and high schools, well, it'll affect the tradition of the kids. Well, the kids actually really were fine. The kids were going to be all right. 
and they moved forward. So like to change this, not only in professional sports, but all through society, it's really not that complicated. If you, you know, bring in people and Jacqueline Keeler is actually an, an Indigenous woman who I really love and respect. And she works on the intersections of, you know, racism and Indigenous culture and Native American culture and sports as well. And she like her work is, is, is fantastic. And she actually was part of a speaker series at Pacific University that last year Jess and I were a part of as well from our friend Dr. Jules Boykoff. And like just to hear her speak and it's how simple it is to fix things. It starts with just listening. And this is something that doesn't happen enough, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's a great point you meant about the uncomfortableness of what happens when kids will be fine. It made me think of that video. I don't know if anybody saw it of an interview with high school kids who are having their their team's name changed from Robert E. Lee. And I mean, they were crying and they were so upset. And I thought in a year, nobody's going to remember. But this perceived (laughs) slight, like it's it's a painful for us to have to be inconvenienced by your pain. It's painful for (laughs) us to be inconvenienced by your truth. And that's what this reminds me of a lot. Lindsay, you want to wrap us up? Yeah, I think it's just it's just so important to what everyone has said that Native Americans did not have full nationwide voting rights until 1957, long, long after these mascots were, you know, celebrated and became a part of our everyday society. Howard Bryant had a really good article in ESPN, the magazine, which we will link. And I was going to read a huge section, but I think we've covered most of it. I'm just going to say that one of his quotes was, By the time that they did receive full voting rights, each of the team's names, as racist as they are today, was well fixed within the sports culture. America has chosen logos over people. And that really is what it feels like. And, you know, Brenda started us off with a great quote by Ray Halvater, who is the leader of the Oneida Nation. And I want to read a joint quote by him and the National Congress of American Indians Executive Director Jackie Pata. They're the leaders behind the change, the mascot. And this is this is their quote that they released the day of the Supreme Court ruling. And essentially, the crux of what they were saying was the Supreme Court ruling changes nothing. It would have been nice maybe to have in their back pocket to fight legally, but this doesn't change like what they're going for. And I'm just going to quote here, quote, this is an issue that we have always believed will not be solved in a courtroom. And this ruling does not change some very clear facts. Washington football's team promotes markets and profits off of the use of a word that is not merely offensive. It is a dictionary defined racial slur. This is a word that was screamed at Native Americans as they were dragged at gunpoint off their lands. And the Hayden Fuse meaning of the word is precisely why this particular name was given to the team by a vowed segregationist and first team owner, George Preston Marshall. And the problems caused by the Arwar epitaph are still very real and present today. Social science research has shown that it is continued use has devastating impacts on the self-image and mental health of Native Americans, particularly children. All of that, the end quote, all of that is much more important than any attachment that we have to a sporting team name, which guess what? You still get to love the sporting team after they change the name. You can still love the sporting team and then you can do it guilt-free. So tipping point, come. Next, we're going to turn to FIFA. FIFA, FIFA, FIFA. 
there's just so much here. I'm not even going to say very much, but let's uh, start off with this trial. Jess, you want to talk about it a little bit? So two weeks ago, this major trial started in Brooklyn. It's shorthand in the media is the FIFA trial. It's the first trial stemming from the arrest of FIFA officials in May of 2015. At the time, the U.S. Department of Justice released a statement that started this way. Quote, a 47-count indictment was unsealed early this morning in federal court in Brooklyn, New York, charging 14 defendants with racketeering, wire fraud, and money laundering conspiracies, among other offenses, in connection with the defendants' participation in a 24-year scheme to enrich themselves through the corruption of international soccer. So in all, the United States has charged 42 people and entities, and about two dozen have pleaded guilty already. Now there are three men on trial. Jose Maria Marin, the former head of Brazil's federation and once on FIFA's organizing committee for the Olympics. Juan Angel Naput, a Paraguayan and former FIFA official who was president of South American soccer's governing body. And Manuel Borga, a Peruvian soccer official and former member of FIFA's development committee. So these three men are on trial. According to Bloomberg, quote, the U.S. says the three took bribes and kickbacks from sports media and marketing firms tied to matches, including World Cup qualifying events in at least five South American countries. The trio then used U.S. financial institutions to funnel millions of dollars to secret offices offshore accounts. So this trial has really been something. So first, the jury is actually anonymous because, quote, there were documented attempts to obstruct justice and intimidate witnesses. Okay, so that's from court documents earlier this year. One key witness is Argentine sports marketing executive Alejandro Berzaco, who pleaded guilty a couple years ago. Berzaco said he had paid Jorge Del On, a lawyer who worked for Football for All, a government program which held the rights to football broadcasts in Argentina, and another Argentine official, $500,000 each every year from 2011 to 2014 to secure the broadcasting rights to football games. Now, hours after Berzaco said this in court, Del On committed suicide by throwing himself in front of a train. Brzaco also described a vote trading agreement between officials from Spain and Portugal and officials from Qatar that he said he was told about by Julio Grandona, a top FIFA official and president of Argentina's soccer association who died in 2014. The South American officials apparently voted for Spain and Portugal to host the 2018 World Cup, which actually is going to Russia, and for Qatar to host the 2022 competition. Brzaco also said that Fox Sports... Fox Sports teamed up with a South American marketing firm to send millions of dollars in bribes concealed by using offshore side entities and sham contracts to high-ranking soccer officials in exchange for lucrative broadcasting rights to major tournaments like Copa America. Fox Sports, of course, says this is untrue. Now, Borga, one of the defendants, made two throat-slitting gestures during Brzaco's testimony. The second time that he did it, Brzaco broke down in tears on the stand. Borga's lawyer says the gesture is because his client has a skin condition that makes his skin itch. Okay. <laughs> so this is a like it's wild. Like it almost feels when you read about it that like you're like reading about a movie. And the thing about it is that it's like it's not necessarily surprising. So we know that FIFA is incredibly powerful and incredibly corrupt. We talk about that a lot on this podcast. But it it really seems like this trial, which I'll reiterate, is the first one since that major arrest sweep two years ago. It's not really getting much press in the U.S. sports media. Now, I'm not sure if that's different in South America where the game is bigger. And since these three men are from that part of the world, maybe Brenda can talk to us about that. 
But I kind of worry about these moments, like when we should be paying attention, but we aren't because we're so exhausted from these countless stories about institutional corruption. So like, I want to hear what you guys think about what's going on here with the trial in particular, but also like, how should we be handling our exhaustion in these kinds of moments? Yes. And this is like, you can't even, you couldn't script this. They would say this is too outlandish of a script. Shereen? Well, I just wanted to add one thing that I follow this stuff and it's like it's like a continuously we have a permanent incinerator at Burn It All Down for FIFA. And it's just <laughs> along with the systems of misogyny and racism that we see, homophobia and lack of progression of anything. I also just wanted to add a fun fact. Some people might not know this, that in the Mafia Museum in Las Vegas, Nevada, there is a special exhibit dedicated to FIFA. And (laughs) I think that's really, it's really important to realize that when we're talking about stuff like this, like, Jess talked about the corruption. She talked about like the violence. Like it's literally, and Amira alluded to, it's a script. This is actually what this entity is. So let's just, you know, use that as a way also to frame what like a it's all bullshit and it's all like wretched and it actually and we have to keep in mind here when we get back to thinking about the purity and the beauty of the beautiful game this absolutely affects people it affects people at grassroots levels it affects development programs it affects so many who rely on football either for development or for grassroots programs in terms of bettering communities like this has real impacts it's not just a soap opera it really really has negative effects on people in communities and that's what's really horrifying. Yeah, that's a great point. Brenda? Well, part of the reason, I mean, going back to Jess's question about why we don't talk about these trials is that it's a structure, it's a global structure that's confusing for people. Mm. It's, I mean, you have FIFA and then you have confederations and then underneath that you have national federations that sometimes both deal with amateur and professionals or in some nations those are divided up. Now, all of that feeds back to FIFA, even if it's a little kid's game, right? So it it has a complicated structure for people in the United States sometimes. So I think they get a little confused. Like, for example, some of these are pretty confederation specific. The three men that you're talking about are deep into Comibol, which is the South American Confederation. Now, Fox Sports is involved, but not in the same way they are with CONCACAF or the United States. So there is a little bit of a difference here because as the money, where you embezzle from matters. <laughs> like, and so Comabal has its own fun facts. And one of the reasons that this is, I think, very serious, it's, it's hard for me even to laugh about Jose Maria Marine because he was vice president of, you know, the Confederation and then president of the Paulista uh, Confederation. But he was actually also governor of the state of Sao Paulo, governor and vice governor during the 80s. And he supported torture, mass torture, incarceration. When we get to FIFA's human rights abuses, these aren't just people that have let Qatar do this. These are people that practiced human rights abuses for the last 30 years in their own countries as politicians. So, you know, Jose Maria Marin, not only that, okay, if we're going to make it slightly lighthearted, he also famously stole medals from a children's team. From a children's team? Yeah. He was, he pocketed them. They're literally stealing candy from babies. Correct. That is correct. That is correct. He was supposed to hand out the medals. It's a very famous incident. 
and he put them in his pocket instead of giving them to the junior players of Corinthians. And this was actually on television. So people saw it. So this is like, this is the type of like scum that we're talking about. But I also get like, I think Jess is so right, like to throw our hands up in the air is to ignore the fact that these people need to like be taken to task for a whole lot of stuff. Mm. And as Brenda mentioned, there's ongoing human rights violations for the FIFA World Cup. So Shireen, you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. I think it's just really important to understand that as we come up to, we heard a lot about indentured servitude of like if you're predominantly South Asians working in Qatar on the stadium. So there's a lot of a lot of issues about that. And I mean, my problem is that when you have a predominantly white society, male sports media criticizing what's happening overseas, it, it gets it, the criticisms are laced with racism and Islamophobia in many cases. But then we hear about what's happening in Russia, like, let's forget about 2022. Like, let's even focus on what's happening right now. And ESPN actually came out with a report about, you know, what's happening towards 2018 in Russia. And we've seen a little bit of that we saw that their pre parade and we talked about it, it was in the burn pile about the paraders went around in blackface like it, it was it was awful and how they're incredibly homophobic and already there's so many human rights organizations that are on standby to make sure that things go quote-unquote smoothly I, I don't know what the bar is for smoothly for FIFA like I don't understand <laughs> where that is it's probably really low but you know Infantino who, who's the current FIFA president has already talked about appalling labor conditions that actually North Korean workers injured during the construction of, of, of a stadium. And I think it's 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 sad that Infantino will make statements like the appalling labor con- conditions, but won't actually move forward and do anything. Like, you know, they there can be everything from banning, there can be fining the Russian Federation, and there's so much political stuff there that FIFA has not shown that they have a backbone to actually do anything about it other than pocket money. And I mean, this is this is a concern. And then again, in the media, you hear, I mean, it's North Korean workers. So there's no affinity for sports media in the Western world and North Korean workers. Like, right, it's just, right. there's no, there's no empathy that kind of eludes from those kinds of stories. And the stories are harrowing. I mean, they're kept in literally slave-like conditions. And it, it's it's awful. And it's just, it's, it's literally a smorgasbord of horrible, horrible things happening in terms of construction, in terms of rollout they're not paid. They show photos of how they live. There's photographs that are kept really tight under watch. So I think it was Human Rights Watch that actually got released a a report as well. So I think that that's, you know, yeah, Human Rights Watch did, they they will link it in the show notes about their report about what's happening there. And it's really, really horrific. Yeah, it, it is. And I think you're so right to put emphasis on the framing. It will be really interesting to see when we talk about FIFA, when we talk about the Olympics, how much the framing of what happens in terms of corruption or human rights abuse in the world kind of gets lost when the subject centers on kind of the Western world or white bodies. I think that's a really strong point. We'll monitor this as we continue to watch it unfold. This week, Shireen interviewed Ariel Castillo about the MLS playoffs. Shireen, do you want to preview your discussion? I had a great time talking with Ariel about MLS playoffs, some of her favorite interviews, and what we can look forward to. Here's the interview. I am so excited to have my friend and 
super multimedia journalist and storyteller, Ariel Castillo, join us today to talk about MLS. She is a senior editor with MLS Soccer, the digital content arm of Major League Soccer. She's writer or reporter. She does on-camera work. I also consider her one of my personal football gurus, and I'm so excited she's here to talk to us today. Welcome. (laughs) I'm so excited to join you, and I see that the check from my parents must have cleared (laughs) to say all those nice things. But thank you. It's very lovely to join you here. Okay, so let's start off talking about MLS, keeping in mind, and MLS, not the real estate site. We're talking major league soccer. I'm also Torontonian, and I'm a bit salty from last year's finals. So we're about to get into the Eastern and Western Conference Championships. And Toronto, the Toronto Football Club is in it again against Columbus. And in the West, we've got Seattle Sounders, last year's champions against the Houston Dynamo. So if you can give us a little bit, Ariel, about how you feel about this year, the season, the way it's gone, and what do you think might happen? Okay. So I don't know how much you want me to explain or back up. So like you said, we're coming down to the end of our season and we'll have the the actual championship game, the MLS Cup final on December 9th. So right now we're getting through the end of our playoffs. So for those who are unfamiliar, we have an Eastern Conference in the league and a Western Conference in the league. So we're down to the conference championship on on each side of North America. And we've already been through one set of games in each conference championship, and now we're coming down to the second leg this week. You know, so on, on the eastern side, we have Toronto hosting Columbus Crew, and on the western side, we have Seattle Sounders hosting the Houston Dynamo. Just to recap, I think on the first leg, Houston lost at home pretty badly to the Sounders, so if I were a betting woman, I would say that it's likely this, the Sounders are going to go all the way through unless something really unusual happens. On the Eastern side, a little while ago, I would have said, okay, Toronto will basically stomp any other team. But Columbus has been so good, and neither team could really get any goals in the first leg. So it could go any way. However, having been to BMO Field now a few times, the atmosphere there is super good, and I... I think Columbus will play well in a quote-unquote intimidating atmosphere, but I, I think Toronto is really hungry for another shot at the Cup at home. And if it's a rematch, that's going to be really crazy and like mathematically very improbable. But but anything can happen in MLS, <laughs> for better yeah. or worse. Another question I have about some of these places are not historically, when I think of men's soccer, I don't actually think of Columbus, Ohio. So are some cities, and you've probably done a lot of traveling, a little more, are still working on football culture around, you know, and and soccer culture rather. And do you see that improving in the work while you've been doing the work you've been doing? It's so interesting. So, well, Columbus, that's a whole story. I think they have a very uh, rich culture around the U.S. men's national team in particular. I've always enjoyed going to games there for Columbus Crusty. Toronto, I think, is a really interesting case just because I was just there three or four weeks ago. It was the playoffs, but it was earlier. And I was hanging out with some supporters at a bar the night before the match. And it was the U Sector, which is the oldest supporters group around Toronto FC. It's interesting because there's there's a hardcore that have been there for the whole time when the team was literally the worst <laughs> to the first. And and it's so funny because they I, I love hanging out with people who've been around the whole time because they are kind of grizzled and <laughs> and have seen everything. But you would never if you just sort of 
happened upon Toronto FC now, you would never know that there was such a like a bad period because the 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 atmosphere there is amazing. I mean the the seats literally shake when people are excited. I think it's I think it's coming up and Toronto is definitely one of the the best recent cities that I've been to. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And and we see that in terms of are there any like kind of rivalries or it was like the Seattle Sounders and TFC if they had let's just hope well in my case let's just <laughs> hope that TFC goes through but is there a, a sort of like a rivalry a famous rivalry within the MLS and not specifically to championships but are there any teams that kind of like it's pretty that you know yeah. of that are like that I think probably the fiercest one is what we call the Cascadia Cup and that is Vancouver Whitecaps Seattle Sounders and Portland Timbers. And the cool thing about that rivalry is that it predates MLS because those are three of the oldest teams in North America that are still going. Those teams have been around since, uh, you know, the the history of soccer in North America is like super nerdy and obscure, especially in (laughs) soccer. You know, there were all these leagues that sort of existed and then folded and then became other things. Those three teams up there in the sort of the Pacific Northwest and the West Coast of Canada have been around for several decades from the 70s, and they've, they've always played each other and always hated each other through all these different iterations of leagues that happened. So that's a real rivalry, and those people do not like each other. And it's the rivalry is made best better by the fact that you can actually get among those cities easily, whereas the rest of North America is super spread out. That's one of my favorite ones. Here in the States, New York City FC versus the New York Red Bulls, most people hate each other. Again, for better or worse, and that's a rivalry that's only, you know, as old as New York City FC, so only a few years old. But that I, I try to go to all of those games and they're super intense. Houston and Dallas really hate each other, although they're pretty far from each other, so it's not it's like a Texas pride thing. Mm-hmm. And Columbus and Chicago, that's another old one. So some of them are sort of geographical rivalry. Oh, LA, San Jose, they hate each other. They detest each other. But I think the one that's the oldest and sort of has the most bad blood is definitely the Cascadia Cup. Wow. And so just to back a little bit, because this is this is so interesting. You've just like totally listed off so many. How old is the Major League Soccer? Yeah. So MLS started in 1996. So it's only 21 years old. So when we talk about rivalries, I mean, obviously it's, you know, like the youngest, one of the youngest sports, major quote unquote sports leagues in North America. So to see the intensity of the hatred in some of these places is kind of impressive considering they're relatively very young or very, very young in the case of New York, New York City. But like I said, some of these teams have been teams for a long time predating the league. So there's a a real history there. So a little bit into, because I know you talk about, you write about and know a lot about soccer culture as well and different, and you're multilingual, which I love. So is there are there issues in the MLS that come out as they would and they reflect reflected from other international leagues? Do we see issues? And what I mean by that of like homophobic stuff, like racist stuff, does that come up in MLS at all? Like we see how, you know, Fairnet covers stuff in La Liga and Serie A and stuff, but, and there's issues with the Mexican Football Association as well. Do we see that reflected in MLS at all anywhere? So like my my take on this is that in soccer, because it's a global game, you're always going to see all kinds of issues reflected everywhere. I think the the advantage that we have is because the league is young, the fans are younger and the fans tend to be, even if not, I wouldn't, I struggle with this. So the fans are younger in general. And I think the crowd tends to be 
more accepting and more pushing for inclusion and diversity, just because that is sort of reflects this country's demographics, at least (laughs) among the younger set. So we have our Don't Cross the Line campaign, which is about fighting racism and homophobia in the stands. We had the first out male soccer player in pro sports here, Robbie Rogers, who just retired. Mm -hmm. So I think we do better than, than a lot of other leagues. And I think, again, our advantage there is we're young. So we've had a The disadvantage of being a young league is that you're still building a culture around the sport in a lot of places, but the advantage is that you have an opportunity to build a culture the way you would like it to be in 2017. Yeah, definitely. That's an important point. So on to some fun stuff. Like we see, some people also consider MLS the league that premier players in Europe go to when they retire. Like, Beckham's Uh there. (laughs) I really started to pay attention truthfully to the MLS when Thierry Henry came over to play. That's when I was like, oh, hello. Yeah, totally. You know, Drogba played for Montreal and I just sort of was like, okay, I'm, you know, I could one step closer to me finding him and trying to marry him, but that didn't work out. Yeah. Now you'll have to go to Arizona. Exactly. Now the other thing too is like Pirlo just retired. He played for New York. Do you see a possibility with which maybe players are just getting for the MLS, like premier players, or is it still kind of this place where they wind down and then like exit? So I think, so obviously like Pirlo is, he's one of my favorite players ever. Yeah. And when he came to the league, that was right when I started working for the league. So I was like, there's no, I cannot believe this is happening. Right. And getting to see him play, getting to be around him and stuff was just such a privilege. I do think though, and I, you know, working for the league, I'm, <laughs> I'm supposed to say this, but no, I definitely think there's a sea change and mm-hmm. there will always be some of those older players. I think that want to live in North America just as a lifestyle choice. Mm-hmm. However, I think that's changing a lot and we're getting a lot more players who are sort of mid career or looking to further their career. Mm-hmm. And again, I would point out in Toronto, Sebastian Jovinko. Yeah. There's a guy that played in Syria. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a guy that played in Syria and he, chose to come to North America and pursue his career here close to the prime of his career. And he's happy and he doesn't want to leave Canada. He's pretty much said he's going to finish out his career in Toronto, which is just fine with us because yeah, he's, he's just, he lights up a room like, and he, yeah, he's, he's great. For instance, our golden boot winner this year was a player for the Chicago fire, Nemanja Nikolic, Nikolic. And again, there's someone who was playing at like Warsaw, who chose to come over here and further his career and it worked. So I think we're going to see more and especially we're getting a lot more players from South America, Central America mm-hmm. who see coming to North America as a big step up. We're getting a lot of Costa Ricans, Uruguayans, Argentines and I think we'll see a lot more of that, especially after the success this year of Atlanta United who just entered the league had mostly a young Latin American squad. They just killed it in their first season. So I think there's a sea change happening. That's awesome. So thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down. We love your work, huge fans. Can you tell us where to find more of your work? Yeah, sure. (laughs) I'm very active on Twitter. That's at R-E-L-C, so A-R-I-E-L-L-E-C. Anything that I do will likely pass through the dragnet there. And then I have a website, arielcastillo.com. So A-R-I-E-L-L-E-C-A-S-T-I-L-L-O.com. Yeah, we will link all that 
to the show notes afterwards. And thank you so much for being on. And yeah, thanks for having yeah, me. And you're welcome anytime. We love your expertise. Yay. Okay, great. Thanks. Bye. Great. Now it's time for everyone's favorite segment. We like to call it the burn pile, where we pile up all the things that we've hated this week in sports and set them aflame. Shireen, you want to kick us off? I'm so mad about this. I literally, we have a, for our listeners, we have a document where we put our stuff and I actually put my burn pile stuff in capitals and bolded because I was so fucking mad about this. Again, we're going to talk about the continual saga with the FA, the Lionesses in England and Inia Luko. So I'm really, really tired of hearing the part of the British team, the, the Lionesses come out, the players, and talk about how they have the right morals. So Joe Potter is a player on the team. And she comes out and she's basically talking about how they have their family, they support each other. And I mean, this just gets back to the fact that no one will actually address what Enia Luca was talking about in terms of a system of racism and misogynoir. They just keep talking about how they're a great family mm. unit. And I find this so frustrating and unhelpful in, in in the whole thing, particularly when Leanne Sanderson, a former lioness, actually went on RT and did a really powerful interview with Stan Collymore, who's the football sports writer for RT. And I will link it to the show because I'm just the clip of her actually talking about it. And for those that don't remember, Leanne Sanderson actually flew to London to support Enia Luco when she was testifying in front of Parliament. And like she says that this is exactly what happened. And in the meantime, the lionesses are, are, are kind of just trying to spin this PR thing. And and also yesterday I saw and I raged about this is that there was being reports by this one particular Times writer about how Enia Luca was not a nice person. So they actually reported how Eni was 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 not nice to her teammates. So ergo the racist <laughs> abuse is okay and the comments on Ebola are fair game. I just I'm Jeez. sorry. I'm just so pissed. I want to burn it all and it makes it so frustrating when you want to support the women's game but you fucking cannot handle this type of racist system. (laughs) Jeez, Lindsay, what are you burning this week? Tiger Woods, (laughs) just in general. (laughs) Now, here's the thing. I actually like Tiger Woods. I know that that's like not cool, but like a few years ago in Greensboro, he played the local Greensboro tournament when he was trying one of his comebacks and he was actually like leading after three rounds and it was I've never seen people in my city that excited like people had tears streaming down their faces just from like following him just from catching a glimpse of him I mean it was just like the mania that ensued I mean people love him and you know I love passion in sports but Tiger Woods is trying to come back and what he's doing is he is making it impossible for me to root for him he is just like taking any goodwill or any desire I have to see a champion return to the top and just like, well, throwing it on the burn pile. What he did this week was he played a round of golf with President Donald Trump. We found out about this because the Friday after Thanksgiving, Trump tweeted that he would very quickly play a round of golf with Woods and current number one golfer Dustin Johnson. But what Trump didn't mention in this tweet was that he and Woods actually have business ties. In 2014, Trump hired Tiger to design an 18-hole course at the Trump-branded property in Dubai. 
Now, what Mm. takes this even a step further is that Trump's Dubai property has been in the news lately because the Trump organization hired a prominent construction company owned by the Chinese government to work on the development. So this is a direct violation of the Constitution or would be considered in any normal version of America. And so Trump is just, you know, he's playing his biggest tournament this week and how is he preparing oh just by helping us violate the constitution and and you know palling around with trump i would rather see tiger's mac daddy santa tweet again than this crap (laughs) burn Burn. (laughs) oh my goodness jess what are you burning well, gosh, I want to burn that tweet now that I'm thinking about it again. <laughs> All right. So last week, Oklahoma quarterback and Heisman front runner Baker Mayfield made news. I'm going to just read you the lead from a post at Sports Illustrated that explains this. Quote, Oklahoma quarterback Baker Mayfield tossed a three-yard touchdown pass to Mark Andrews with less than five minutes remaining in the third quarter to put the Sooners up 28-3 over Kansas. After the touchdown, Mayfield grabbed at his crotch and mouthed, fuck you, to the Jayhawks sidelines. So I think the real story here is that this was caught on camera. So the GIF or GIF, if people insist, of this moment was all over social media immediately. Mayfield had to apologize after the game. But then, like, the Big 12 Conference released a statement (laughs) making a formal public (laughs) reprimand of Mayfield, quote, for directing inappropriate gestures and yelling profanity toward the University of Kansas bench and fans. And then this is, like... It's just like stuff you can't make up. Former Oklahoma head coach and all around shitty dude, Barry Switzer, said to a local news station, and I'm not kidding here, quote, I blame it on Madonna and Michael Jackson. They started all that grabbing the crotch years ago. It's been on social media. Everybody sees it. Everybody sees it in the movie. We see it every day out there. I don't know where Barry Switzer lives. So all of a sudden, everybody gives me this. (laughs) I guess. Hey, he's an, an un- he's an insult. We ought to fire him. We ought to kick him off the team. They're idiots. And thank God they're not the coach of the Oklahoma Sooners. How about that? So then in announcing that he was going to punish Mayfield by not letting him be captain in his final game in the regular season and would not let him start the game, head coach Lincoln Riley said, quote, no matter how long I go coaching, whatever the rest of my career ends up being like, I don't know that I will ever have a player that is as special to me as he is. According to USA Today, at that point, Riley got so emotional talking about Mayfield feel that he had to pause for almost 30 seconds and i just keep thinking this is about him grabbing his crotch (laughs) okay so in the end mayfield wasn't captain and he only missed the first two plays of the game on saturday against western virginia and managed not to be on camera touching his genitals in a taunting way but before the game the captains for oklahoma when they went to the center of the field for the coin toss took with them one of mayfield's jerseys and held it up symbolism for their missing quarterback as david oven tweeted he didn't die guys he grabbed his crotch <laughs> so this week i want to burn the theater around the stupid gesture by mayfield that was caught on camera men and their dicks are ridiculous burn burn this week i'm just burning in general the lack of coverage of women's sports i watched a few football games yesterday as I was shuttling through airports and half of them had scores of outrageous proportions like 66 to 3 or 7 or whatever it was. Meanwhile, there was some very intense women's volleyball action happening, riveting matches, 
that I could not find anywhere. I was searching for links. I was basically following a live stream on Twitter and it just really grinds my gears. This is just like a recurring burn, I suppose. But yesterday it really got in my head. I was just so frustrated that I feel like I have to claw for access to watch women play sports at a high level when teams are out here. I mean, did you see the Oregon-Oregon State game yesterday? It's just absolutely ridiculous that that is like readily available to watch on multiple platforms, and yet I can barely find any place to watch the competitive women's sports that I want to watch. So I'm burning down the lack of coverage for women. This week... I'm going to add to an evergreen FIFA pile, but I truly believe this is a new twist on the subject. I'm going to burn FIFA's micro-persecution of me. What? Yeah. Mm. So first, I wrote an article about FIFA in which I I spoke with four FIFA representatives. This was last year. And my co-author, Josh Needle, and I also wrote their email. And we got a letter in response threatening to sue us because we had not contacted one particular email of the 20 that they decided was the one that you contact for comment. Oh, my goodness. Not one featured on their website, nor one featured in our email communication with their public relations department. Then this week, I decided to complain about the – it's a four-year suspended ban from UEFA that Denmark women's national team received. So they failed to show up for a qualifying match with Sweden. And in the end, what happened is they got a fine. UEFA fined them 20,000 euros. And in addition to that, they now have a suspended ban, meaning if they fail to play a game within the next four years, they are banned from UEFA tournaments. When the Estonia men's team did this, They got to replay the qualifying match and didn't receive anything. So I tweeted out from my little itty bitty Twitter account with my itty bitty beloved 2000 followers or whatever that this was some bullshit and that women should start to think (laughs) about organizing independently. Mm. At that point, FIFA started fighting with me on Twitter. People who work for FIFA... (laughs) like the head of digital communications started to tweet me back and say oh that's not fair we have so many women's projects and i'm just gonna burn this answer i said well great since you work for fifa why don't you tell me how much money you've spent in comebol in the south american confederation on women's development Mm. and he tweeted (laughs) as of yet we have not done that accounting Mm. Burn, burn, <laughs> so up burn, yours, FIFA. Burn. Stay the fuck out of my mentions. <laughs> and I'm burning your micro persecution of all of us out there who hate your guts. Okay. Burn, burn, but also can we get up yours, FIFA? Get the fuck out of my mentions on a t-shirt. ASAP. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that has got I to be that, our first burn it all that, down merch. <laughs> I, I want I want that on a mug for sure. <laughs> so after all that burning it's time to celebrate some remarkable women in sports this week with our badass women of the week segment we have a good amount of honorable mentions this week 
starting with Anija Krumina, whose name I struggle with, of Latvia, who is the first woman to win gold at a race in the Para World Cup bobsled in mixed gender competition. She was the only woman competing among 11 men and brought home gold. Also, we have the Mexican Women's Football League, who set attendance records this week with 32,000 at their final, which is awesome. I also want to shout out our former guest, Simone Lee, and her co-captain, Haley Washington, who combined for 41 of 67 kills on the way to leading Penn State's volleyball team to a 17th Big Ten championship last night. And I also sat next to a young woman on the plane who told me all about these two girls who are playing football at Danville High in Ohio, former state champions. One is a kicker and one is a wideout, and she talked about how inspiring it was and the difference they're making in the town. So I want to give all of those wonderful kick-ass women honorable mention this week. And can I get a very cute and endearing drum roll, please? Our badass woman of the week is the Minnesota Lynx's Maya Moore for furthering the tradition of Black women's athletic activism. For her recent piece on the Players' Tribune, it's a video piece that I recommend everybody watch about her work on prosecutorial reform in the American justice system. I recommend everybody check out this video in which Maya profiles a case that her and her godparents have been working on of the young man who has been falsely convicted and basically put away for a number of years. And also, if you want more on the discussion of reform efforts in this way, I also recommend you watch the Khalif Browder story, Time, which is now available on Netflix. It is an important topic and one that I'm so happy that Maya is bringing light to. And for that, it is my pleasure to award her Badass Woman of the Week. So, what's good in everybody's life? Shireen, you want to start us off? Thanks, Samira. So I just came off of a really fun week. My daughter went to the OFSA finals, which is uh, this what we consider state finals with her high school basketball team. They didn't advance to the championship rounds, but it was an incredible opportunity. So her school is kind of ranked 11th in the province, which is a really big deal. And there were a couple of women, there was many women of color, but she wasn't the only one in hijab, which was really fun for me to see. There was a young black woman in hijab and her mom and I kind of like, exchange pleasantries. So that was I was really excited about that. I'm a proud mama. And this week, I'm actually going to Vancouver, I will be participating in a panel called athletes as agents of change and resistance with a guest we've actually had on the show before indigenous athlete, runner Tracy Leos, Dr. Patricia Vertinsky, and Elizabeth Walker Young, it will be moderated by my friend Courtney Sito, who I love. So I'm really excited about that because it's an all women panel and that will be in Vancouver. So so I'll be there for a couple of days and I get to see my best friend, Irendira, who's coming to visit me from Edmonton. So we're going to hang out in Van City. Awesome. Brenda, what's going on with you? So I'm not sure if everybody heard, but Lionel Messi has signed a new contract with Barcelona until 2021. And this is so good for me because I don't have to get in any more bar fights with people who conjecture that he's leaving for the Premier League, which would ruin my life almost because the Premier League's trash. 
and <laughs> it's subpar and they don't deserve him. So for all of the journalists that spend all their time chasing him around and creating ridiculous news, ha, ha, <laughs> that's what's good for me. Awesome. Lindsay? Okay, so Thanksgiving and all of its problematic things, but also fun turkey and family time are in the back rearview mirror, which means I can finally, officially and unabashedly blast my Christmas music and spend my <laughs> evenings watching yes. really super cheesy Lifetime Christmas movies. My favorite ongoing plot is when a girl has to hire a boy to like be her fiance during the holidays and then they <laughs> fall in love. But I would like a little bit more inclusive and intersectional slate of options. So if you have any good recommendations of movies that follow really, really trite and probably problematic paths, but <laughs> include maybe the LGBTQ community or, you know, women of color, very attractive men of color. Please, please, please <laughs> hit me up on social media. <laughs> you have to watch A Diva's Christmas Carol with Vanessa Williams. Oh, done. Okay, perfect. Thank you. <laughs> well, that actually intersects with my what's good, which is my randomly proud moments in parenting when you realize that maybe you're doing not so bad after all. My mom was taking my oldest, my nine-year-old, to a store and my mom was remarking at the fact that there was already Christmas decorations for sale and stockings and whatnot. And my daughter just looked at her and said, capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, well, maybe we're doing this right after all. So that's my something good. <laughs> Jess, you want to bring us home? Oh, sure. First, I want to say, Lindsay, you should check out WOC in Romance. Okay. Which I know they're going to live tweet at some point about at least one of these movies that has a black woman as a lead. I love those things too. So I'm with you, those movies. I got a gorgeous new fence in my backyard that I put a picture of on Instagram. I am in love with it. It's like art. Like, it is beautiful. <laughs> some local guy who does metal work, he built it for us. It is so pretty. I just stare at it all the time. And I also went and saw Coco, which is the new Pixar mm. movie. And it is wonderful in every way. And I highly recommend it if, you're if you like to look at pretty things and if you love stories that make your heart sore. It is just gorgeous. That's it for this week's episode of Burn It All Down. We'd like to thank Hofstra University for their continued support. You can catch Burn It All Down on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts. We always appreciate your support and love getting your feedback. So please subscribe and rate and feel free to contact us. You can follow us on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod or on Facebook at Burn It All Down. We also have a website you can check out at burnitalldown.com. There you'll find links from our show, transcriptions, and more. This has been Lindsay Gibbs, Jessica Luther, Brenda Elsley, Shireen Ahmed, and Amir Rose Davis. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Hey.